want to read verses 17 and 18. The Apostle Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the word of God. Imagine with me that you knew that the next 45 minutes or so would be the deciding factor in the souls of every person in this room, depending on the uh, prayers of His people for the outpouring of the Spirit. You knew that. In other words, you knew that the souls in this room hung on your prayers right now. Let's pray and ask that God would bless our time. Father, are you not a saving God? And have you not promised that you would save sinners? Oh Lord, have you not ordained that it would be through the proclamation of the gospel that sinners would be saved? Lord, you have. Have you not ordained that from the foundation of the world there would be a number, an election according to grace that would be gathered into your arms and into your fold? Lord, we see very little of your ways and we understand even less of your infinite wisdom and your working and your power in and through the gospel. But we do have what you have said. And we do have what you have promised to do. We can't claim any names of people in this room. We can't say, God, you promised to save such a one or another. We don't have that, but we do know that you are the God of our salvation. We do know that salvation is of the Lord. Your arm is not shortened, that it cannot save. We know that you have not ceased to work to save sinners in this present age because if you were finished saving sinners, the age would come to its end. We are still here, and so we believe that you still plan to save some. God, would you not save some in this room? I pray that you would help those in this room who, who believe that they are Christians, but they are not. Would you help them to see what you see? I pray for those in this room who know that they're not Christians. Oh Lord, would you humble them to see that that is a horrifying condition. Lord, I pray for those of us who are yours, that we would rejoice in your sovereign grace and in your working through the preaching of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
the Apostle Paul assumed throughout his ministry that there was power in the cross of Jesus Christ. And in particular, he assumed that there was power in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His whole life was given to that end, the proclamation of the gospel. Where do I go? Show me where to go. Show me where to stand. Show me where to preach. If I have to be in prison that the gospel go forward, then put me in prison. If I have to be humiliated that the gospel go forward, then humiliate me. But let the gospel go forward. That was his, his chief aim because he believed that there was a promised power that would come through the preaching of the gospel that was not promised in any other means. He knew that. He believed it. And we have, as we've walked through some of the, the things that he says here, we have deduced that this power, it's not something uh, vague or that we can't nail to the wall. This power is simply God working, doing something through the cross of Christ, manifesting His own power and wisdom in saving sinners, but also confounding the wisdom of man all through this one act, the, the crucifixion of Christ and, and even the preaching of that, that crucifixion. The cross act, if you want to use that phrase, a hyphenated phrase, the cross act, the crucifixion, the man on the cross, where we've seen him there, okay? What was happening there? In that one act, God was, at the same time, judging, but also saving in one act. And we've also seen that it's the same with the preaching of the cross. When, when the gospel is proclaimed in that one act, when it is accompanied by God's Spirit, there's judgment upon some, but there's also salvation for some. God's sovereign, omnipotent activity is operative in judgment and in salvation as the gospel is being preached. I've said it before, I'll say it again. People talk about responses. Everybody responds. Everybody already in this room, if you're of a rational mind, you've already made some response to what you've heard about Jesus Christ. And you will continue to respond. There's always a response, either for the judgment of the sinner or the salvation of a sinner. That concept, what God does, that is the background behind what Paul's saying here. Paul is assuming all of that as he writes. And that is the thing that the Corinthians had either failed to grasp or had forgotten or had gotten away from. They had misunderstood this. They were judging preaching and preachers by the standards of their culture. And then they would use their favorite preacher, whoever that was, as a way to exalt themselves above their fellow man. It's like we, if you're into sports, you, whoever your team is, well, you, you put that sticker on your car or you wear that shirt, and that's how you show the those who pull for the other team, that you think you're better than them. You identify with this team, and if they, if they won the championship, well, then you're saying, yeah, we're the championship winners. You know, they even got the shirts that everybody buys, the, the such and such a championship. Well, that's what they were doing with preaching and preachers. I am of Paul. 
Well, I'm of Paulos. Well, I am of Cephas. Well, I am of Christ. They were dividing into teams according to their favorite preachers. And so the apostle is working to bring them back down to earth by reminding them that any positive effect of the preacher or in the preaching is only attributable to God. You can compliment the preacher. You can, you can appreciate the sermon. But you have to understand the preacher, the sermon, did not work any grace in you. Only God does that. Only God. That humbles, that humbles you and it humbles me. It humbles the preacher. And he's reminding them, this is the great irony of it, that the very message of the cross is antithetical to that habit of self-promotion. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. The, the, the concept of preaching, the message that is preached, all of that is the complete opposite of, well, I'm better than you because I like this preacher. They, they don't go together. That's what he's trying to show him. The message of the cross... The manner of its communication and the entire worldview presented in both all serve as a wholesale condemnation upon all of the value systems of the world. Now, I, I just gave you three things. There's the message of the cross. There's the manner of its communication, preaching. But there's also the worldview that we, we could just call the way of the cross described in, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, the way of the cross, the, that entire worldview, all of that condemns all of the value systems of the world. Again, God confounds the sinner, the wicked, and He saves His people through this one act, the preaching of the cross. And so because that's true, then it's safe to say that we can divide humanity, especially in the eyes of God, but we can divide the human race into two groups. Those who are confounded or judged by the cross and its preaching and its worldview, and those who are saved. Two groups of people. And what is the sword which cuts our race in two, that divides us? According to Paul, we could say generally the cross but more specifically, the preaching of the cross cuts the human race. I don't know that it's in half. I don't know if it's two-thirds one way, one-third. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. But it does divide the human race into two groups. Those who are judged and those who are saved. Now notice what he says in verse 18. For... He's going to explain why he just said what he said in verse 17. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Let's put 17 and 18 together. He just stated in verse 17 that he was sent to preach, not baptize. He was sent to preach, not with words of eloquent wisdom. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now we would say... What, what power? Paul, power to do what? Well, he, well let me explain. Let me, let me tell you what I mean here. He's assuming that there's power, but he wants to explain what that power is. Why does he have to preach in a certain way so as to not empty the cross of this power? He, he says that, that word for, in verse 18, we could unpack further as, as if he's saying, here's why I say that. You see... The word of the cross is folly 
to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In other words, I don't want to preach in any way that would rob the cross of that activity in both directions. It has a power to do both, and I'm not going to speak in any way to keep it from doing the thing that it was intended to do, which is cut the race of humanity into two groups. And again, that, that is the effect. Paul says, I don't want to empty the preaching of the cross of the very effect that it's meant to have. What is that effect? It divides the human race into two groups. Those judged and those saved. Those confounded by its wisdom and those delivered by its wisdom. Or those who are perishing and those who are being saved. It's the exact same thing that Christ said when He said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And then He goes on to unpack. I'm going to divide people. Where is that found? Matthew chapter 10. We call it the disciples' discourse. The discourse on the, the, the commission and mission of preachers. Christ has said, I have come... And now I'm going to send you out and my sending out you and the proclamation of the gospel is the sword which is going to cut the race. Now, uh, uh, we need to keep this in mind and I say this often because this is important. We tend to think that Matthew 25, the great judgment scene, goats on the one hand, sheep on the other, that 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 is the moment when everybody finds out who's lost and who's saved. We're waiting for the judgment day to find out. And, and there will be a great revelation on that day of, because we don't know everyone. But in this age, as the gospel goes forward, that's already happening. It's already dividing the race into those two groups. That's just the day when they'll be gathered before His throne. It's already happening. So I want to consider the two effects of the preaching of the cross on these two groups of people under two headings. And you could think of it, uh, I've got a colon in my point. So point number one would be the preaching of the cross, colon, folly to those who are perishing. And then the preaching of the cross, colon, uh, salvation or power to those who are being saved. Or you can think of it as a, uh, a newspaper headline. The preaching of the cross, folly to the perishing. The preaching of the cross, power to those who are being saved. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So number one, the word of the cross, folly to those who are perishing. And this is what we would call the negative effect of the preaching of the cross. If we want to use that terminology for us, we don't, we don't delight in the fact that the cross is folly to anyone. That doesn't bring us any joy, but it is a fact He says, the word of the cross. And in that phrase, the word of the cross, Paul refers both to the actual message of the cross of Christ as the centerpiece of the gospel, the cross, but also, and more particularly here, the preaching. The the, the topic is preaching and preachers. The preaching of that message. Now, they always go hand in hand, the message and the preaching of the message. You can't have a message without a messenger. They always go together. The word of the cross, or the proclamation, the preaching of the cross. And this is to be set in contrast 
to what he said in verse 17. That what the ESV translates as words of eloquent wisdom, that, that the word words is actually a singular noun. It would actually be word of wisdom or wisdom of words. So you have a, a, a contrast. There's the word of man's wisdom, and then there's the word of the cross. These things are opposites. He's, he's giving us a contrast. That which man considers wise, which was a status symbol amongst the Greeks, wisdom, and we'll see in a minute, that was more than just intellectual attainment. It was a worldview. That which man considers wise is contrasted with the cross, which was a symbol of shame and humiliation. It's folly to those who are perishing, both in the message and in the manner of its delivery. Or the, the, the message of the cross and the manner of its communication. All of its foolishness to those who are perishing. Think about the message of the cross. The message of the cross is more than just the story of a man undergoing a form of punishment. Now, if that's all it was, it would be shameful. It's hard for us to understand this. If I described to you so-and-so was uh, put to death by lethal injection, so-and-so was put to death by hanging, so-and-so was put to death by the electric chair, you'd say, ooh. Your thoughts of that person would not be great. That'd be a sad thing. Okay, that's, that's awful enough. A man crucified, ooh. It would have made the original audience shiver. But the message of the cross is actually more than that. The message of the cross is that the God who made heaven and earth, subsisting in the second person of the Son, took on human flesh so that He could be nailed to a cross and suffer the agonies of that, the Roman crucifix, the worst form of punishment that was known to that day, maybe ever. The message of the cross is that while Jesus of Nazareth hung by the nails in His hands and feet, while that was happening, He was enduring the penalty of the broken law of God in the place of those who were guilty of breaking that law. He was suffering for their crimes. The message of the cross is that while Jesus was hanging there, naked, exposed, in shame, in front of those people, hearing their mocking and their jeering of the crowd and the criminals who were there beside Him. There were others there. They were crucified right there beside Him. They were making fun of Him too. While He heard all of that, while He's gasping for breath and dying... He was crushing the head of that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. Destroying the works of the devil. Saving the world. Surely you can see the folly in this. But that's the message of the cross. Think about the manner of its communication. The message of the cross is to be carried around the world by relatively normal, uneducated, untrained men using simple speech and plain terms. Just, get, just train men and send them out to tell everybody that this has happened and that three days later he rose from the dead. Now we're going to see more of this in chapter 2 where Paul says, 
things like this. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come, in, come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. That's the manner of its communication. It's preaching. Plain, simple preaching. Just telling people what has happened. And all of this, Paul says, is folly. This is the word from which we would get our term moron. It's moronic. We could say the word of the cross is moronic. It's foolishness as to its message. Again, the message of the cross was and is utter foolishness. Let me read to you a quote. When viewed through the intellectual categories of a first century city like Corinth, the very idea of God incarnate being crucified as payment for sin was beyond comprehension. To die by crucifixion was to die in shame. A public display of horrific punishment. The crucifixion was the symbol of Roman power. The cross declared to Roman subjects, do not mess with us. That's the cross to them. Yet Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Foolish as to its message, foolish as to its communication. The preaching of the cross, the scheme of God in His infinite and perfect wisdom is that men will just go around the world heralding this message of the crucified Savior as emissaries of the King. Now we, we, we don't have this anymore really, but you can think of the emissary, the messenger of the King coming into a village, gathering everyone around, telling them, I've come with the authority of the King to let everyone know what the King has decreed, what is the, the latest edict from the King. The carpenter from Nazareth was actually God and when He was crucified, He actually conquered the devil Three days later, he came back from the dead, and now he is king. Bow to him. It's foolishness. Foolishness. To preach the cross is to proclaim that that symbol of Roman power now stands as the symbol for heavenly power. While Rome was saying, do not mess with us, God was preparing to wipe Rome off the face of the earth. He was conquering Rome. Let me read some more quotes. The proclamation of a crucified Messiah is not a message non-Christians want to hear or something to which they will be attracted. Now, this is the same in many churches. This is why the cross is not preached in, in, in the majority of churches. Uh, they might give a, 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 a hat tip to the man on the cross at some point. And they might say Jesus and God, but really the message of the cross and especially the worldview of the cross is not proclaimed. The, the, the message in many churches is whatever exalts man, whatever makes people feel really good, whatever, whatever uh, stirs up the flesh, that's what people want to hear. Preaching a crucified Savior was absolutely scandalous in Greek culture. Think about this. In our age, the cross is a well-known and established Christian symbol. However, to speak to a first century Greek of a crucified God is to talk nonsense. Think about it, right? We see crosses everywhere. 
Crosses on the side of the road, crosses on the median on the interstate, crosses on the people's earrings, crosses on tattoos, crosses on shirts, crosses on necklaces. Uh, the cross as an icon, iconoclasm aside, whatever, however you feel about having icons, the cross as something to look at means essentially nothing in our culture to, to no one. You see, you see a cross on the side of the road, what does that mean? Did somebody wreck and die here? It was, are we, is this a proclamation of Christianity? Now, I, I think, I uh, hope that we as Christians, uh, this is my perspective, if I see someone in the world, a waiter or a waitress or a store clerk with a, a, a necklace or some jewelry with a cross on it, I immediately assume they're trying to identify some religious position. That's the way I think of it, but I don't think the world really sees it that way. The cross means nothing. That's not the case where Paul's writing. That's not the way they thought about the cross. And the cross didn't have multiple different meanings. Well, maybe it is in memory of someone who has died. Maybe it is a, a religious symbol. Maybe they just liked the way it... No, it wasn't that in Paul's day. It would be akin to us having a necklace with an electric chair or a guillotine or a gallows or building a gallows in the, the median of the interstate. You, you, when you saw that, you would think, somebody's a little off. Somebody's trying to be edgy. They're just trying to go out of their way to shock people with that imagery. It's the kind of stuff you see on you know, heavy metal records, right? And CDs, not records. CDs. Like, they're trying to be shocking. Some people still listen to records. Uh, they're trying to be shocking. They're trying to be edgy. They're trying to push the limits of, of the human experience by making you think of death and torture. That was the cross. That's the way they thought of the cross. Yet Paul is now proclaiming that through the cross of Christ, God triumphs over sin. That was another quote. It's difficult for us to imagine how grotesque and foolish this would have sounded back then. We don't think this way anymore. The cross is just decoration. God incarnate was difficult enough to grasp. God incarnate subsequently crucified was just too much. They just said, that's, that's moronic. You're saying things, I, I just can't even, I can't even go there. I can't even think in that world. That's the way it was received. It was folly. Paul says, the word of the cross is folly to a particular group. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And the language of the verbiage here is just that. They are perishing. They're in process toward destruction. And here we're reminded that there is such a group. There are people. There is a group of people throughout history, who are perishing. They are on their way to destruction. In Paul's day and in our own day, there are those who are, in the language of Romans 9.22, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. They are perishing. They're going that way. Now, I want to think about what that would have meant in, in the first century. Those who are perishing, the unbelievers, are identified by their allegiances to the prevailing spirit of the age. And this is why the word of the cross was folly to them, because the word of cross was opposed to the way that they lived. The word of the cross was a message of condemnation, 
upon their entire worldview. The whole system of worldly ideologies is crushed by the cross. This system is contained really entirely in that phrase in verse 17 that we have translated words of eloquent wisdom or the word of wisdom, the the message of the wisdom of the world. One commentator says this, Wisdom was used as used by Paul may mean more than intellectual pursuit. And I think this is important because when we hear wisdom, we just think of going after something that gives you information that you can, maybe you would even go as far as to say you can use in life. It's wise, but it's mostly mental. In, the, in this culture, wisdom, this idea was not just a mental pursuit. It was a worldview. That's what he says. More broadly, that one word may capture what we call a worldview. In that worldview, man is at the center and God is at the margin. Such wisdom from Greeks is a celebration of the subtlety of Socrates, the elegance of Aphrodite, and the athleticism of the Olympic competitors. In a few words, it's about cleverness, power, and style, things so important to the Greeks but expressed in every society where those values become dominant. Cleverness, power, style. Now we, in our day, we, we, don't, we don't put the banner over the, the, the spirit of the age as wisdom. We wouldn't call it that like they did. But it's the exact same thing in our day. This is the worldview of those who are perishing. Wisdom for the Greeks was the quest toward the exaltation of man. To be wise was to discover the way to live that would move you higher and higher and higher in the eyes of others. It was an entire way of living. And again, he uses those terms, subtlety, elegance, athleticism, or cleverness, power, and style, or we would say, the attainments of the mind. Advancement in your status in society and possessions or the allurements of beauty and sensuality. Wisdom was the all-encompassing worldview which would use those things, these, those outlets, to build every man's tower higher and higher into the heavens. Whichever one you pick or whichever uh, combination of these you pick. And, and again, our, our culture is the same way. Think about it. What are these staples by which men elevate themselves in the eyes of others? There is the intellect, people that are very smart, very educated, very articulate. And they say things, and the way that they say them, and the way that it's presented, people just, they just buy it wholesale. Well, they're smart. People with material possessions, the wealthy, well, they're powerful. They're influential. They, they can use their material possessions to influence others. And then there's beauty, that which is attractive, or people who are attractive. They draw the eyes of men or women to themselves. And we know that you don't have to have all three. If you're very, very smart, you don't have to be rich and you don't have to be good looking. You can, you can influence. You can hold your head above others. If you have a lot of possessions, money, wealth, well, you don't have to be very smart. You don't have to be very good looking. You've got possessions. You can, you've got power. You can exert that influence. And if you are extremely good looking, well, you don't have to be very smart and you don't have to have much. That, you can use that as a platform to build yourself up. And eventually in our culture, you, 
probably will acquire possessions and things like that and influence because of your looks. Our world judges matters on this scale of value. Are they smart? Are they rich? Are they good looking? Can they teach me something? Can they give me something? Do they stir up my lusts? This was the... This was... Wisdom was how to use those things to get yourself up higher. Now, some of you in this room, this is your worldview. You use or you make decisions in your life based on these criteria. Will it give me knowledge? Will it make me money? Will it make me attractive? The things in the world you, you place on your scale of value based on these criteria. Well, it makes me smart. Move it up the scale. It's valuable by worldly standards. Move it up the scale. It's attractive. I like to look at it. Move it up the scale. And over here is all that I value. And my life is aimed at attaining these things. That's the worldview of those who are perishing. The things of this world. That's the system against which the cross militates. It's trampling that system. It's against all of that that Paul comes with the word of the cross. A message that is foolish. Preached in a foolish way. A lifestyle that counts everything as loss except knowledge of Christ. A lifestyle that demands self-denial. A cross by which the world is crucified to us and we to the world. All of its values are dead to us. That's what the cross proclaims. And if you pay attention, this is, these are the categories that Paul opens up in this section, verses 18 to 25. You have the folly of the cross versus man's wisdom. In 26 through 31, the weakness of those that God saves. It's not those who fit into these great categories of, of wealth and power and influence and nobility. No, it's, it's the opposite. And then... In chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, the utter non-attractiveness of his ministry. I didn't come do, he says, I didn't come doing anything that would attract anyone with regard to style. In other words, everything about the cross, the message, the manner of its communication, those who preach it, those who receive it, everything about it is folly to the world. But because it is the way of salvation... The fact that the world views it as folly is the condemnation. It's manifesting their evil. It's showing this is what God thinks of you. God has provided this way of salvation. And yet you, you judge it as foolishness. That shows you are under that condemnation. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Number two, the word of the cross... Power to those being saved. And here is the amazing grace of God. He says, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It being the word of the cross. To those being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God in their salvation. How so? Well, again... It's in the message of the cross and in the manner of its communication. The word of the cross comes as the power of God and salvation. As to the message of the cross. And this could be un unpacked 
All by itself. Paul says in Romans 1.17 that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Well, that's what we've got to have. Without that, well, there's no salvation. This is the message that reveals here's God's righteousness provided in Christ. Uh, not a righteousness that's by the law, yet the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The gospel proclaims it. The word of the cross shows us where the righteousness of God, which God requires, has been attained for us by Jesus Christ. The message of the cross is that the God who made heaven and earth in the person of the Son took on flesh and became a man like us in order to suffer the agonies of the Roman crucifix. You say, I've heard this before. But think about it. He did this in obedience to His Father. That obedience was the culmination of a life of obedience. So that when Christ said, it is finished, and He gave up His Spirit, He sealed and brought in everlasting righteousness for the people of God. The message of the cross is that while Jesus of Nazareth hung by the nails in His hands and feet, He was enduring the penalty for a broken, the broken law of God in the place of those who had actually broken that law even though He Himself never sinned. He Himself had no sins. We are full of sins. He dies and we are saved. It was you and I who should have hung on the cross and who should be hanging on the cross even now and, and, and unto eternity. And yet He hung there. That's the message of the cross. The message of the cross is that while Jesus was hanging there in nakedness and shame, listening to the mocking and jeering of the crowd, and even his fellow criminals, one on each side of him, they were mocking him too. He's gasping for breath. While he was doing that, he was crushing the head of the serpent, destroying the works of the devil, and saving the world. He was ushering in what we would call a new epoch of history, in which the righteousness of God in justifying the ungodly was now not only vindicated, but necessary. See, up until that point, God had justified the ungodly, but there was no vindication of it. Where is the everlasting righteousness? How can you do this and still be just? Christ dies. Now there's no argumentation. The righteousness has been provided. It's sealed. No, no condemnation can be brought against any of God's people because the righteousness has been provided. And it's necessary. God is just in justifying the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. Surely you see the wisdom in this. To the perishing, well, that's foolish. To those who are being saved, that's salvation. As to the communication of this message, God has chosen human preachers. God has chosen human communication to address human sinners. He uses men who share in the human sympathies of their hearers. He's chosen a method that's fairly easily multiplied and replicated all over the world in every generation. As Paul will say, we, we have this treasure in jars of clay. A jar of clay, you use it for a while and it goes back to the dirt and you make another one. That's, that's the method God has chosen to use. A simple human preacher becomes the vehicle of everlasting saving truth. Not towering intellect, not worldly power, not allurement and attraction. It is simply a man telling other men that there is salvation in no other name, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved, except the name of Jesus Christ. 
It's simply a dying man telling dying men where they can find life. As some have said, it's simply a beggar telling all the other beggars where to find the bread. That's the means God has chosen. Surely you can see the wisdom in this. And Paul says this is the power of God in its message and in its method. It's the power of God. Now, ironically, he doesn't say wisdom. I wonder if you noticed that. He says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power. We would have expected him to say folly to the perishing, wisdom to those being saved. But he doesn't say wisdom, he says power. The question is, why does he say power? He gets to wisdom in a minute. But I believe that what he's doing is he's starting with what is the ultimate aim of wisdom in the minds of his hearers, which is transformation. They, they thought this wisdom, this worldview, was the way to be advanced along and moved up. But there's no power in human wisdom. It, it doesn't actually do that in, in reality. Let me explain why I say that. The gospel, the preached cross, is the means chosen by God to bring salvation to sinners. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. What, 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 the preached gospel. I'm eager to preach the gospel to, to, also to those who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. What gospel? The preached gospel. I'm not ashamed of the preached gospel. For it is the power of God. It, the proclamation of the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is God's chosen instrument in the salvation of sinners. And that works out in several different ways. In regeneration, God uses the gospel in the new birth. 1 Peter 1, 23, you've been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. And then verse 25, this Word is the good news or the gospel that was preached to you. You have been born again through the preached Word. Not the preacher, not the sermon, but the power of God coming with the preached gospel. Galatians 3, 1 and 2, Paul says, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He preached the cross. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Hearing what? Hearing Christ publicly portrayed as crucified. The Spirit came and they received in regeneration. The, through the gospel, through the proclamation of the gospel, God has chosen to change the nature of sinners in their seat as they hear the gospel preached. Regeneration, the new birth. But the word of the cross is also God's instrument in our sanctification. In Romans 10, 17, Paul says, faith comes by hearing. And I don't think that he means us to read that and say, yeah, that, that one instance of faith resulted from that one instance of hearing, and then after that you go on to different things. Uh, no, I think he would, we, we should conclude that faith goes on and increases from faith to faith, advancing throughout the Christian life as we keep on hearing the gospel, as we continually hear the proclamation of the gospel. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, verse 2, by which you are being saved. 
The preaching of the gospel was resulting in their ongoing sanctification. In other words, the preached gospel remains the ongoing sanctifying instrument in the life of the believer. And included in sanctification is the notion of transformation. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In other words, we advance from glory to glory. We're transformed into the image of Christ more and more as we behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. And that glory is is in no place more conspicuously set forth than in the gospel. The gospel is where we see the glory of God most clearly displayed. Here's the point in all that. The word of the cross, the gospel message revolving around Jesus Christ and Him crucified, is God's chosen instrument to accomplish these things. To bring sinners from death to life, to sanctify them, to move them along this conveyor belt of holiness so that they become more and more like Christ, the preaching of the gospel. In other words, it's the word of the cross accompanied by the omnipotence of God that alone can transform the human race. Intellect won't do it. Power and wealth won't do it. Sensuality and beauty and pleasure won't do it. Emotions won't do it. None of of those things will ever change a person. Why? Because God has chosen to use a different means. None of the things that men chase after will ever bring forth any change in the soul of a man. It's through the preaching of the word of the cross that the salvation of God takes effect in the lives of men. The work has been accomplished. God has promised that it will change and transform. Where does the rubber meet the road? When the gospel is preached, it changes people. Now think of the irony. The message of the cross is humiliating. The manner of its delivery is humiliating. The lifestyle of self-denial and cross-carrying is completely opposed to all human wisdom. The Corinthians in this Greek culture, with all of their wisdom, they're trying to climb higher and higher. Paul comes with the message of the cross, which requires us to come lower and lower. Go down, down, down. They wanted to lift their heads higher and higher over one another. And they used human preachers as that leverage. And Paul has to remind them that their Savior was the laughingstock of his generation. Some of you have heard the the story of the old graffiti that was found etched on a wall in this area of the world. Of a man scratched in the wall. It was a, a man on a cross with the head of a donkey. And underneath the inscription said, Alexa Minos worships his God. That's what they thought of Christianity. That's how they viewed viewed us. Listen, that's how they view us. Paul's not merely presenting two avenues of belief. Well, you can believe that or you can believe this. No, this this is two worldviews. Two different ways of going about life. One is broad, one is very narrow. He's reminding them and us that to identify as a Christian is to identify with what some have called the cruciform God. The God on the cross. 
is to go with him outside the camp and to suffer his reproach in the eyes of men. That if they say that those are the people who serve or worship the ass of the cross, we say, that's my Lord, that's my Savior, call him what you will. But I have no other salvation. He's king and he's God. But that's the way they see us. That's the way it's viewed. It doesn't make any sense to them. According to the biblical gospel, power appears as weakness, and weakness is presented as true power. It's the way of the cross. Now, you, you, we, we ask, if this is the case, how on earth did any of this gain any traction? How did, this make, how did it make it past day one if what we're saying is true? These people thought the cross was so foolish that they would say these things, and yet, here we are. Still, we're still doing it. How can it, how can it be? And he says at the end of verse 18, to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is only so to those whom God has chosen to save. And again, what amazing... What an amazing truth it is to, to just recognize that there is such a group that the Apostle Paul could write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and describe a group of people as us who are being saved. Just like the word perishing, and before it's, it's in the tense of an ongoing process. From eternity there has been an election according to grace. And so for those that God has chosen to save... The instrument of their salvation is the preaching of the gospel and the only way that it works is through the power of God. He has chosen to save some. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. In God's wisdom, this one method, the preaching of the cross, serves to divide the human race. It brings salvation to some and it savors as foolishness and death to others. So that for some of us, what we love to hear over and over, some of you, every time it comes up, you say, come on, let's get past this. We've heard this before. Some of us, we sing the song about the old, old story that we, we love to hear so well. And for others, you say, I, I don't understand. Why do we keep, can we not move on to something more practical? Two things we can draw from these truths. Number one, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Only two, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. There are only two kinds of people in this room, those who are perishing, those who are being saved. There are only two kinds of people sitting on your pew, those who are perishing or those who are being saved. There are only two kinds of people at your dinner table this week, those who are perishing those who are being saved. There are only two kinds of people in your workplace. Those who are perishing. Those who are being saved. We've seen from this text that these groups do exist. There are those who are perishing. There are those who are being saved. Now we don't know with absolute certainty who they are. What, what do we do? We proclaim the gospel. We preach the gospel. Only two kinds of people. The number two, the preaching of the cross, is the dividing line. It is the ongoing preaching of the gospel which makes the line between these groups of people more and more clear. Now, I don't mean to say that you, you proclaim the gospel one time and everybody jumps, jumps to their side of the room and now you know. 
It may take an ongoing proclamation. It may take a while for these things to be more clear. And, and we may not know the, we won't know the full distinction between humanity until the end. But this is the dividing line in the present time. Our, our obligation is not to figure out who all's on each side. Our obligation is to wield the sword that Christ has given us. It's the dividing line. First of all, in its reception, obviously, those who are perishing do not receive the gospel. They don't want to hear it. They don't like it. Or maybe they do like it. They don't mind hearing it, but for the wrong reasons. And those who are being saved do receive the gospel with gladness and joy and faith. But also in thinking. The cross is the dividing line in the thinking of men. What do I mean by that? Well, remember the cross is not merely facts to be heard and agreed upon. Anybody who can pay any attention to any legitimate history book can tell you, based on history, the man Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and three days later he was alive. That's just, that, that would fly in any court of law. That's not, that, that shouldn't have to be proved to anyone. That's just the truth. And a lot of people will hear that message and they will agree with it and, and assent to it because contained in that is the offer of salvation. Do you want to go to hell? No? You want to go to heaven? Yeah. Well, then agree to these facts. Okay, I'm in. I'll, I'll take the man on the cross if that's what gets me to heaven. But their thinking never changes. Remember, it's not just the message And it's not just the manner of its communication, but it's also this entire worldview that comes along with it. You don't get the cross without the way of the cross. The cross of Christ reverses our thinking. The way of the cross is totally upside down and backwards from everything the world teaches and believes. The preaching of the cross presents us with a different value system than that of the world. We operate on the, the shekel of the sanctuary. We don't, we don't function on their, their systems. Now, we, we, have to, we, we do engage in, in, the, in many things in our society, but hopefully you get what I'm saying. We, we don't see the value. You give us a dollar, you tell us it's got a standard, okay, I'll use a dollar. If that's what you want to use, we'll use a dollar. But what is this really to me? Ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, it means nothing to me. So there may be some here that you hear the gospel message and maybe you can receive it with acceptance. You agree. You say that's, that's what, that is the Christian message. You see salvation is offered in it and so you will assent to it. But in your mind, in your thinking, you're really not any different than the world because you still live for self-advancement and self-promotion. You still plan your life around the value systems of the world. Intellect, prestige, allurement. Will it make me smarter? Will it get me more money, more possessions? Will it draw people's attention to me or does it draw my attention to it? You still think in terms of influence and power and satisfaction and pleasure, the things the world puts its stamp of value on. You value all that they value. You've not taken the way of the cross. You're still thinking like those in Corinth. This is how they thought. So what do you need to do? Well, you come back to the cross. You look at the Savior again. Look at Him. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent on a pole in the wilderness, so also Christ was lifted up on a cross outside Jerusalem so that all who look to Him will be saved and will be transformed and will have eternal life. The world has all of its allurements, has many different ways. Take your pick. A a world of ways 
The cross offers one, only one way. In its message, in the manner that it's delivered, the preaching of it, in the way that we must go about our lives, laying, laying down ourselves, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, following Him. There's only one way. It's very narrow, as Christ said. We don't get to go shoulder to shoulder, and we don't get to take all of our things with us. It's a tight squeeze down this narrow way. Straight was the old word. Not, not, that doesn't mean this. That means this. Straight, tight. That's the way of the cross. Paul's, Paul's trying to get them to see that. You, you can't bring that worldly thinking into Christianity. They don't blend. They don't, they don't mesh. They're oil and water. They won't go together. So look to the cross. Look to the crucified Savior. Let's pray. I hope that you won't find find it redundant to read these words a third time. The message of the cross is that the God who made heaven and earth in the person of the Son took flesh and became a man like us in order to suffer the agonies of the Roman crucifix in obedience to His Father. The message of the cross is that while Jesus of Nazareth hung by the nails in His hands and feet, He was enduring the penalty of the broken law of God in the place of we who actually broke that law. The message of the cross is that while Jesus was hanging there in nakedness and shame, listening to the mocking and jeering of the crowd and His fellow criminals, gasping for breath, He was crushing the head of the serpent, destroying the works of the devil, and saving the world. So as the elements are passed, meditate upon these great truths, and then we'll come and we'll have communion together.